Hi everybody, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches Podcast. Every single Friday from the end of December until the start of February, we're giving you the chance to sample just some of the awesome subscriber-only podcast content that our $5 monthly patrons have been exclusively enjoying over the past 12 months. If you like what you hear in this episode and you want more of it, then all you need to do is become a patron of The Dispatches with $5 or more per month at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Or even easier, you can just click on the link in today's show notes and sign up that way. All of our subscriber-only episodes of The Dispatches podcast are now available on Spotify as well, which makes the listening even easier. One more quick thing before we start this free episode of The Dispatches. In 2024, we're going to be launching an awesome new website called The Forge. The Forge is an online platform that will offer lots of new, high-quality video, audio, and live stream content to help you shape your life and your intellect in the fires of goodness, truth, and beauty. The website is still being built, but there is a splash page that is live right now, so head on over to theforge.org.nz and leave your email address so that you can be the first to know when the forge is live and the fires have been lit. The link is in today's show notes. Right, without any further ado, let's jump into this free edition of the Dispatches podcast. And until next time, don't forget, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Conservations, the podcast which got its name by literally combining the words conservative and conversations, which is exactly what happens on this show every month. Each episode, we host a conversation with at least one other guest where we go in-depth on a topic or hear about their experiences on this journey we all share together called life. The aim of this show is to foster and promote dialogue which cultivates goodness, truth and beauty, and in doing so, unpacks the richness of the authentic conservative tradition. My hope is that you'll find these conservative conversations intellectually engaging and enriching, and that they will draw you ever more deeply into an authentic, truly flourishing and more meaningfully lived human experience. In this month's episode, we are going to be talking with Deacon Harold Burke Seavers. Known around the world as the Dynamic Deacon, Harold Burke Seavers is one of the most sought-after speakers in the Catholic Church today. He is a powerful and passionate evangelist and speaker whose no-nonsense approach to living and proclaiming the faith is as challenging as it is inspiring. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics and Business Administration, along with a Master's degree in Theological Studies, and he co-hosts a national weekly radio broadcast in the United States, as well as hosting and co-hosting several popular series on the Eternal Word television network. Oh, and did I mention that he's a fan of Iron Maiden? Well, you'll find out more about that during our conversation in this episode. So without any further ado, let's have this important conservative conversation with Deacon Harold Burke Seavers. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Deacon Harold, thank you so much for being on the podcast. 
Um, before we even get into any of the, uh, you know, the, the typical dinner time non-controversial topics around race that we're going to talk <laughs> about today, um, can you just tell us a little bit about your your you got a whistle stop tour of New Zealand going on? So tell us a little bit about what you're doing while you're here. Yeah, so um, I'm giving a talk at the Catholic Theological College, and I'm speaking in uh, parishes, speaking to a men's group. Um, so yeah, so I'm giving probably three, four talks a day uh, for uh, three days, and then heading off to Papua New Guinea. Oh, awesome. Well, wow, that's quite a different location from where we are now. Yeah, and, uh, two countries I've never been to before. I've, I've been to 29 countries. This is uh, New Zealand's my 30th, and then... Uh, New Guinea will be my 31st, and then to Australia, which I've been to before. So you're in th- uh, what, 29 countries so far. You're, you're uh, obviously in full-time ministry then. Yes, that's right. I was uh, So in my 20s, I was a, a Benedictine a monk. Really? Um, oh, yeah. wow. So I, I, love, I love the Benedictine spirituality, so yeah, you're, you're singing my song. <laughs> yeah, me too. Love yeah. them. And then uh, uh, was in law enforcement for 23 years, a police chief for 11 years. And then left all that in 2012 to speak and to write full-time. I, I, I was speaking part-time yeah. while I was working in law enforcement, but then left all that in 2012 after an experience with Lord and Adoration. Yeah. And, uh, and took a year, but then in 2012, I started doing it full-time. Wow. I mean, I, I didn't realize you had a, a background in law enforcement. And, and that um, w- w- the, some of the topics we're going to talk about today, I'd imagine you actually uh, have some real-world first-hand experience then. Uh, we're often, at the moment, that the racial question in America anyway is playing out around law enforcement lines, right? Yes. You know, pick a side, are you blue or you Black Lives Matter and that kind of stuff. So you've actually been on that front line. Yes, absolutely. And um yeah, I get asked that question, you know, because uh, I used to teach at the police academy. Mm. Uh, so I, I've, in fact, I was chair uh, of the board of the Department of Public Safety Standards and Training in Oregon, which is the agency that oversees the training of all police officers for the state of Oregon. So I'm intimately familiar with the training of police officers. And so I do get asked that question about what's, what do we need to do? What do we need to change? And <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, I know exactly what's, what needs to change. So. Tell, tell me then, I, 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 let's start there then. Um, no, in fact, I'll ask you one more question because uh, my listeners will hear you uh, being addressed as Deacon Harold by me. And some of our listeners are Catholic, some are Protestant, some have no religious faith whatsoever. And they'll be thinking, what's this Deacon all about? So tell us a little <laughs> bit about that so our listeners know exactly why I'm calling you Deacon Harold. Yeah, so in Acts chapter 6, we see that um, the, the, the widows um, were feeling uh, neglected. And so they went to the apostles. The apostles were busy doing the work that we're called by Jesus to do, you know, pick seven men of good repute, which they did. And the apostles laid hands on them. And those were the first uh, deacons. Among them were Stephen, who was the proto-martyr, of course, mm. uh, of the church as well. And so uh, in the Catholic understanding, the deacon assists the bishop with his ministry of evangelization. Um, so the bishop has two jobs to facilitate communion and to evangelize. So he has the priest to help him with the facilitating communion and he has deacons to help him with his ministry of evangelization. So why, th- this is quite an interesting trajectory for me that you, you've gone from Benedictine monk first, then law enforcement and then deacon. Mm-hmm. It, it, it seems like a, an interesting sort of um, vocational trajectory. Is, is there, was there a reason why um, you felt that uh, well, why, how come that trajectory, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, yeah, so ever since I was 9 or 10, I felt uh, attracted to going to church and going to Mass and started altar serving, absolutely loved it. 
I remember serving mass one day and uh, as the priest was about to elevate the host and I was about to ring the bells, I, I totally felt I could see myself doing what that priest is doing, mm. you know? And um, when I got to high school, which is run by Benedictine monks, they had a come and see program, which I did all four years of high school. And so uh, I went off to uni, I graduated, um, worked for a year and then joined a monastery. Well, my work was in law enforcement. So, <laughs> well, okay. so in the States, uh, students go away from home and they live at the university all four years. And so many of those universities have police departments. Yeah. And so I worked as a student police officer and then I worked full time for the department and then joined the monastery. So when I left monastic life, I got back into law enforcement again, which has started my, my career. Yeah, and I guess um, I'd imagine that Benedictine spirituality never you never go from that once you discover it. Right? Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah. So I'm an oblate. So yeah. um, uh, some of the orders, like the Dominicans or the Franciscans, uh, call their uh, people who follow uh, uh, their their way of living their spirituality uh, third order. Mm. Um, but uh, for Benedicts, we call ourselves oblates. So I I try to live a Benedictine spirituality every day of my life as a deacon in the church. That is awesome. I, I um, In my ministry, I regularly, in fact, just two days ago, I was no, yesterday, in fact, I was talking about St. Benedict, uh, speaking to a group about um, the loss of authentic community in the West and how the Benedictine model saved the West. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I love Benedict. I mean, it's just there's so much about him that just is probably more relevant for our times than ever before. So it's awesome to be able to speak to someone who's actually living that out. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And uh, like I said, um, St. Benedict is uh, uh, an important part of, of my spirituality and mm. just the way I think and approach life, even um, uh, in my family life. You know, I mm. try to, to and the rule of St. Benedict talks about the role of the abbot who takes the place of Jesus in the monastery. So I try to live my my fatherhood and spirituality like an abbot in a monastery, in a sense, you know. Oh, so, that is awesome. Yeah. I've actually, he's watching over us right now. I've actually got an image right above my computer that he sits above my desk and uh, he's got the raven on his shoulder holding the crook uh, painting that someone drew. So um, we're in good company. Um, now, let's talk about this issue of law enforcement. And uh, I mean, we're going to talk about r racial issues because you've written a book about this and I re I'm really intrigued. I'm, I'm very interested in this. Um, but the question of law enforcement, just something you said just before got me thinking because I've I've had this theory for a while as an outside observer who does not live in America, but my sense is that um, there has been an increasing militarization of American law enforcement, and that is really creating a sort of a problem in some areas. Am I correct in that, or is it uh, is it something else altogether that's really driving a lot of what we're seeing? Yeah, so what I think is going on is when I went through the academy and then at, at teaching at the academy is that they don't d uh, train or test for bias. Mm. So for example, uh, you take a psychological test, you do all this kind of testing, physical fitness tests, shooting tests, uh, you test your fitness to be able to do the job. Mm. But one thing they don't train for or to learn to detect is bias. So mm. for example, in traffic stop school, um, when, they learn, <laughs> when they teach you how to do traffic stops, you're supposed to treat every person motorist the same way. But the problem is if someone comes in with a with a preconceived uh, racial bias or, yeah. or, or, or a racial prejudice um, or is just outrightly racist, that is going to play into how they do that traffic stop. Sure. See, so what we have to do is find ways to detect that 
okay, we, we see this within this person and be able to deal with that and, and uh, um, you know, train the person out of that way of thinking or kick them out. Yeah. So <laughs> if, if it's, if it's too ingrained, if they're just a hardcore hillbilly racist yeah, or something, they, you just they, can't work they with need it. To, they need to go. Yeah, exactly. D- does that, I, I mean, America is a melting pot of races. So I'm assuming that's not just black and white, that, that potentially could be people stopping Asian drivers, all sorts of things, right? Potentially, but Correct. probably uh, primarily uh, black traffic stops would be assumed probably by people who have a bias to be criminal, yeah, right? Is that yeah, what you're saying? it's yeah. not the traffic stop thing, it's just what happens during that stop and yeah. and the shootings that have been, have been taking place and things like that. Um, why aren't they using less than lethal uh, mm. methods and things like that and some of them are not justified at all shooting like the the one incident where the, the young man was running away and he got shot in the back i mean come on you can't yeah. do that you yeah. know um or some of the the, uh, the other things i've seen it just makes your stomach turn even the george floyd thing you yeah. know i was watching that video and i was literally yelling get the hell off his neck yeah i mean yeah. I, the thing is look no matter what drugs he was on, what his past, that's nothing to do with how you're treating him in that moment. So obviously he was causing a problem in the back of the car. They took him out, um, but he was on the ground. He was cuffed. And why was the guy kneeling on his neck for 10 minutes? That makes no sense. Yeah. You, 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 we're not trained to do that. No police officer is trained to do that. Yeah. You know? So, uh, so the question is, why was he doing it? And the other officers standing around allowing that to happen. Yeah. They should have stopped and they should have said something. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and that, so I found it as a law enforcement officer problematic because what that does, that puts a, a, a huge stain on all of us who put our lives mm. on the line every day for people we don't know. Um, and, and so, but, but that becomes a picture of what law enforcement is. Yeah. And, and that's just the, 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 the wrong picture. Yeah, it, it, it really struck me particularly because my father who died a few years ago, um, a beautiful man, but he suffered from schizophrenia for most of his adult life. And there was one incident I remember just before my 12th birthday um, and he'd gone off his medication. He thought, God has healed me. And he was sure he was healed. He wasn't. And he woke up one morning and thought he was the king of Ireland a couple of weeks later. And uh, so the police had to be called to commit him for a psychiatric assessment and get him back on medication. And uh, the police arrived and knocked on the door and he shut the door first, then he shut it a second time and then he punched the first officer and the three tumbled back down behind him. My my father had been a farmer, big guy. And the next minute they're in there and he was in a state where he, with schizophrenia, you get delusional. And so they got a, a police officer trying to, one each arm, trying to bring his arms together to cuff him and one swinging off his, uh, off his neck and pulled out a billy club and they tried to use that at one point. He just calmly turned around and said, please, would you stop doing that? I don't like that. And, and they got really worried. And then he saw my mother and dropped his hands and they cuffed him. But they stopped, right? That They got him under restraint and then that, it stopped at that point. It didn't yes. carry on, you know? That's right. And I remember once... Um, uh, so I was a police chief on a, on a, on a university and uh, a young man who was on some meth or some, some kind mm-hmm. of drug walked into the, the girl's uh, dormitory and said he wanted to have sex with the co-eds. Mm-hmm. And so I had installed panic buttons underneath the desk. And so mm-hmm. the, the button was pushed, the alarm went to our office and I heard the call on the radio. Officers respond. I didn't respond. Okay, they'll take care of it. Next I know they're calling for backup. And they're describing this kid about 19 years old, scrawny. I'm like, why didn't he back up to deal with a kid like this? So I get out there with the sergeant, and he's throwing my guys off of him. I'm like, and he can't, he's tall, he's skinny. I'm like, wait a minute, what's and so he was on something. So like four, it took four of us 
to restrain him. And we did have to, I mean, I did have to kneel on him and stuff like that to, to get, to get him under control. And why do we, and that kind of action happens uh, so that the person is not a danger to themselves, a danger to you or the danger to anyone else around them. And once the person is secure, everything stops. So yeah. I'm thinking it took maybe 11 or 12 seconds for four of us to get this young man cuffed so that he was no longer in danger to anybody around him. And what, once we did that, everything else stopped. Do you think fear and adrenaline can kick in? You know, that they're like shooting someone in the back. Is that is that uh, a combination of bad training and other things? Or is it someone who freaks out and doesn't know when to stop? Well, it seems someone like that shouldn't even be on the street. Yeah. Okay. You know, you got, you got to screen people <laughs> like that. You, you <laughs> yeah. can't just take because, yeah, you have to make very quick decisions mm. in a very short amount of time. And mm. things can escalate very, very quickly. You know, you think you have a situation under control. And next thing you know, the person is lunging at you or they're or they're. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're reaching for something, you know, cause you're always trying to look at people's hands. And so yeah. when people don't comply, they, you know, that raises up another level of, of, of awareness and, and danger in your mind as an officer. Cause your job is to go home to be with your, your kids and yeah. your wife, or if you're a female officer, your husband, you know, when you, when, when you get off of shift. And so, yeah, your adrenaline is going, but, but you're supposed to be learned to, to <laughs> yeah. control that and to think. Yeah. You know, um, yes, your your adrenaline is going right now, but you have to think in the situation, um, and, and and that's why w- what I did, I, I practiced a lot or trained a lot of uh, my officers in verbal de-escalation. Uh, you yeah, know, recognizing yeah. that yes, this person right now that we're dealing with um, is 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 uh, frantic, they're angry, but your job is to first listen. Yeah. You know, because as they're talking and you're listening, because they're they're not angry at you, they're angry at the situation. But yeah. now you're representing an intervention into this situation. Now, in their mind, you're a problem. So yeah. if you just say, look, I'm just here to help. Tell me what's going on and just listen to them. Allow them to get their thing out. And, and, and as they're talking, they're coming down, they're coming down, they're coming down. And now they're in a situation where you can deal with whatever issues going on. Now, if the person is mentally, uh, uh, has some kind of mental issue yeah. or is on some kind of a drug or, 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 or is uh, drunk, that makes things a lot more complicated. Then it becomes a safety issue. You know, uh, you want to secure the person first and then have a conversation with them, if, if possible. Yeah, I, um, I have an uncle who was, uh, he's now deceased, but he was a police officer in New Zealand. And um, so I, I sort of had uh, insight through him about, and his entire career was law enforcement. And in New Zealand, it's just so different. Um, he was part of something we have here called um, the Armed Defender Squad. And it's like, I guess the equivalent of SWAT team, but you're not full time. You get called up, a regular police officer gets trained, special training, and then when they need you with an armed incident, that you get called up into that situation. And um, uh, and he did work on the drug squad and the uh, homicide squad here as well. But one of the things I remember him telling me about was an incident where they had to, he had to sit for four hours beneath a negotiator um, trying to talk a man down with a shotgun um, who was in a domestic situation and he was threatening to kill himself. And for four hours he had a, a sight on this guy and he said the whole time, it was the worst four hours of his life. He said, because if he raised the gun, I had to shoot him. And he yeah. said, I just didn't want to do that. I yeah. did not want to do that. And it was, as to me, it struck me. I remember that story and seeing some of the stuff in, in America going on around policing and that the sort of, I feel like the, that us versus them mentality in some cases is, it just ramps the stakes up even more, right? Yeah. And you don't see the humanity in the person, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's why I always tried to, to recognize, you know, you don't want to be stupid and keep your guard down so much that you're not. Yeah, aware that yeah. you're that you're putting yourself in danger. So you we walk up to a car, 
uh, to me, it doesn't matter who was driving, what color they are. You know, I had probable cause to pull them over. And of mm. course, the first thing I want to do is, is is see where their hands are. Are they reaching for anything? If they're that that kind of thing, because hands can kill. That that's the one of the first things you learn yeah. in law enforcement. So I, but I try, I try to treat every single person the same way. Of course, mm. people don't like being pulled over, right? So <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying. So I give them a reason. You know, um, like some officers will say, you know, what did I do wrong? Driver's license, registration, proof of insurance. Yeah. yeah, but why'd you stop me? Uh, uh, give me that. Uh, okay. okay, I'll tell them why I stopped. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You know, and, yeah. And, and, and okay, can I, can I please have your driver's license registration insurance? Here's why I stopped you. And let me just go back and 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 check things out. If there was a guy, you'll just give you a warning or something like that. You know, just try to not be a, a jerk. You know. Yeah. Uh, but again, you have to have your p's and q's up. You know, the person if they're reaching for something, if they look nervous, if they're not following directions. If they look like they're impaired, you know, you, you have all these things going on. You have to make a judgment because what you're trying to do is to help keep other people safe. Mm-hmm. Because if the person should not behind the be behind the wheel, then it's your job to make sure that person's not a danger to anyone else. It's uh, I, one thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I, I find it. Um well, I feel like there's a false dichotomy that often happens whenever you have these questions around police shootings and police use of force, particularly in the American context. And it feels like sometimes the people who rush to the aid of the police don't help either, just like people who want to blame all police, for, you know, they're always at fault. The flip side is people who try and defend the indefensible. Do you do you think that's a fair sort of assessment of what happens yeah. sometimes? People, I mean, the commentators who feel they have to defend the police at any cost. Right, right. And you have to look objectively at it as well. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was highly upset at some of these incidents because the officers were there. There was no uh, defense at all for the actions that they mm-hmm. took. There's no way you can defend it. So you can't mm-hmm. defend the officer, you know, because the action they took was ridiculous yeah. um, and was, it was uncalled for. And people got hurt or killed because of the uh, and they were per- and they were prosecuted. You know, they, they were they were fired and, and stripped of their law enforcement authority and they were brought to court and they were found guilty and rightly so mm. and rightly so. So you have to look at this on a case by case basis. If there, and if there is something, a pattern, something that looks systemic, which, again, that's why I think we have to train. Uh, and I try to identify bias yeah. at the academy level, because someone like that cannot be out on the street uh, yeah, <laughs> trying yeah. to deal with people when they have a racial bias in their mind, well, this I'm just going to deal with black people this way. I'm going to deal with this person this way. And no, you have to treat every single person the same. So, a probable cause for not well, this uh, why'd you pull me over? Were well, you in the wrong neighborhood? What the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, what does yeah, that yeah. even mean? <laughs> yeah. I have a right yeah. to be wherever I want. If I'm not, do, yeah, I'm not yeah. doing anything illegal. I'm not doing anything yeah. wrong. We mean I'm in the wrong. That's not a reason to pull anyone over. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, gosh. Uh, tell me, um, before we, uh, this is a, probably a good segue to start talking about race, but before we get into that, I know there's been a, a Supreme Court case around um, Harvard admissions and uh, um, uh, affirmative action. Do, you often hear that a bit around law enforcement and other professions. Do you feel that that's affected the, the law enforcement profession as well, just well, in general? Well, like, here's like, the thing. I, not, not along racial lines, but just in general. Is there a a risk of lowering of standards and, and, and from that as well? Well, uh, hopefully not. Not at all. Mm. In mm. fact, what some uh, departments have done, they've up, uh, actually upped the education requirement because they, yeah, want, okay. they want men and women who are able to think. You mm. know, and, and the thing is, the more educated they are, the more you're able to, to think clearly and discern what's going on in a particular situation. Um, uh, so the Supreme Court decision, you know, and, and the thing is this, you know, I, 
I'm not a huge fan of affirmative action in the sense that, well, we have to lower the standards so that we can allow these other people. No, we have to we have to educate people to rise to meet the standard. Yeah. Or yeah. exceed it. I, yeah. I don't want I don't want someone to hire me because I'm black. What the hell is that? I yeah. want someone to hire me because <laughs> I am the best person for that position. Yeah. I'm the most qualified person for that position. And if you don't want me there because I'm black, the hell with you. I'll so, go work so, for somebody else. So do you feel that, as a black man, do you feel that the sort of the tokenism of it? And so it seems to me that you sort of see that as like an insult. Like, well, do you not think I can make Yeah, it? of course. It's a slap in yeah. the face. Yeah. yeah. You, what you're saying is I am not capable to reach this standard. Therefore, mm. we have to lower the standard so you can meet it. No. Mm. We have to be able to educate people to meet the standard. And yeah. So what happened? The schools are failing our young people. So we have to make the schools better. You know, we we have to, for example, we have the, the, the one of the big controversies is the voucher system. So if you yeah. want to send your kid to a Catholic school or to another private school where the education is much better, um, some states won't allow you to do that because all your tax money is going toward a, a public education system, which is what? Which is failing our children, which is teaching uh, transgender stuff in kindergarten, yeah, sure. which is pushing an agenda. I don't want my yeah. kids to be part of that. So yeah. let me take the tax money and put it toward something that's going to really educate them and bring them opportunities that I may not have had a as, the as their parent. That's going to give them opportunities to su succeed in life and become uh, a productive citizens for the common good. That's what, that's what should be happening. Before we, um, I agree with you, by the way, there. <laughs> um, and, and I'm saying that as a father of five kids, like, you know, your kids are like, you, you, you die for them, you know. And there's enough ideologues out there trying to <laughs> intervene in ways that are not healthy. Um, tell me, um, uh, before we really get into, uh, I, I want to talk about the racial issues in this book that you've written. What are your experiences like? Um, because you're someone, you are black, you're black American. It's sort of the um, the world feels like it focuses right now on racial issues in America, all around the globe. We hear about it a lot. What, what What's your take as someone who grew up in the States and as someone who's, I guess at times, maybe has had to grapple with those issues? What, what, yeah, what do you, so, how would you describe America? Yeah, so I was born in Barbados, actually. Um, okay. we, we immigrated to the United States, but... Uh, and, and lived in the state of New Jersey and mm. uh, was you know, cat, graduate, uh, educated in Catholic grade school, high school, uh, university and graduate school, uh, Catholic institutions. Um, my mom was the first Catholic in our family. She, she was a convert as a teenager. And I'm the oldest child, so I'm the first baptized as Catholic. Wow. So and, and my mom, you know, she was a, a nurse. But um, as far as the faith, she wasn't very well educated on the faith. But what I saw was her witness, right? When my dad mm. left our family and I helped my mom take over, I saw the sacrifices that she made. I saw the meaning of, 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 live, uh, of, of Christ crucified and, yeah, and, 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 and love through her. I mean, she, mm. I, those are back in the days where the nurses wore uh, the white outfits with the white starched hat and the white shoes. Yeah. And I remember my mom going to work with holes in her shoes and runs in her stockings because we, the kids, we needed stuff. So wow. she sacrificed for, and I saw that. And so for her, education was the way out. You know, yeah. so she always pushed education. She worked so much overtime to pay the tuition to send us to a Catholic institution so we can create opportunities that she never had, you know, yeah. or, and, and, and so I never forgot that. And I never forgot the sacrifices that she made. And so she would always teach us to treat every single per person with dignity and respect. 
And so I grew up in a black neighborhood, but I was Catholic. So we had to go across town to go to church <laughs> at the white. <laughs> wow. So so the, so the school I went to was, you know, there weren't many black kids in the school. There weren't many black families in the parish. And yeah. it wasn't an issue for me. I mean, I was in Boy Scouts. I was a Boy Scout in that parish. Yeah. And, um, you know, we just, we just all got along. It was just... Back then, it wasn't a lot of that whole racial thing. So I just learned to appreciate everybody for who they are, you know. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's not. We see what happens is this: you're not born racist, unlike yeah. what critical race theory teaches. You're not born you're, you're, you're a racist. What? Because you see why? Anecdotally, you see little kids playing on a playground, right? Four year old, yeah. five year old. They don't. They don't I'm not going to play with you because you're Chinese. I mean, no one, no, no kid does that. No, they all, they're no. all playing together, right? Yeah. So what happens over time? You learn prejudice. You yeah. watch television. You hear jokes from your parents. You social media. You hear your friends talking, and you, you you see the way people and cultures are depicted in these different arenas. And you come to make judgments about someone, even though you don't know them. You start to make judgments about someone. So, for example, you see if you all you see on television is that you know. Uh, black people in neighborhoods wearing hoodies are dangerous. Mm. When you go out to the real world, you see a black person with a hoodie. Oh my goodness, they're dangerous because I saw. Yeah. And you don't know where that comes from, but you're you see you're being taught. You're being taught yeah. that. So my whole thing is if you can learn it, you can unlearn it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I I, mean, I grew up in a very poor family, and um and and a what we call in New Zealand a low decile school, uh, poor poorer sort of areas. And um, it was interesting to me um, as I got older and in my career and meeting people who hadn't grown up on my side of the tracks who were white and they had all these assumptions about people who were not white in New Zealand because I'd never even been around them to experience and understand it. They just, it, like what you're saying about stereotypes and things you see in the media and, and the assumptions that people just, uh, they consume them and they absorb them without even realizing it's happening often. Yeah, that, that's right, and, and so we we carry these prejudices into into life and, in, and into the real world, and so um, you know when when you're uh, uh, applying for a job, like you know you're, someone's sitting across from you. For, for example, uh, I, I remember um, you know if someone's applying for a job in my department, I would always be the last interview. You know, because okay. they, they go mm. they go on ride alongs and see how things work. And, you know, then the, the, the sergeant and all the people, they kind of assess the person, then bring it to me. And I would decide whether I want to interview the person or not. And um, <laughs> someone comes in, they're sitting across from you. And this uh, particular person um, uh, was from a, a background, uh, a religious tradition that that doesn't see black people in the best light. You know, okay. so so I said, hey, you know, um, it, would you have problems working for someone like me? You know, and they hesitated on their answer, <laughs> and I said, okay, nope, they're done. <laughs> because if you have to hesitate about that, then like that, that again, it raises a question in my mind: Are you going to be able to take orders from me? Are you going to be able to follow my yeah. lead and the way I want I want this department run? You know, um, if you're if you're if you're here. Because you don't want to, because unis are safer environments than working in a municipality, right? Yeah. Working on the streets, dealing with like bad people every single day. Here you're dealing yeah. with students. And my attitude was, these students are coming to this university to get a quality education. They're mm. going to learn in the classroom. Well, their interactions with us, they're going to learn from the classroom of real life. Yeah. They're going to make mistakes. So you have these 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are considered adults, and their adult clothes are too big for them. 
And so they're going to spend these next several years learning to fit into their new adult clothes. So when they make mistakes, we have to hold them accountable and, yeah. and teach them that right now, you're, you, yes, you, you made a mistake, you messed up. It's better to tell the truth and be yeah. honest about what happened and accept the consequences for that action. It's better to do that right now in this uh, environment than to not learn that lesson and then make a mistake later in life that's going to cost you a job, a career, a reputation, a family. You see? So what, what I'm my officers, I said, we're teachers in the classroom of real life. Yeah. And that's what I want our young our young people to experience with us. Yeah, the school of virtue, right? Re- yes, really exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, um, it, it seems to me when I look at America and the race issue, um, like America has its own unique complications. Uh, every nation does in this regard. Um, you know, things like antebellum slavery is and and, mm-hmm. and, it's, and, and the civil rights struggle. It's actually still fairly recent. Um, but I look at America and two things strike me. Number one is it feels like at the moment we are exporting American racial issues that are unique to America into other countries where they don't actually exist, but we're acting as if all of those issues are in every country and, and that's not helping. And number two is um, it, it, it sort of feels to me like, and I'd love to hear your take on this, I don't know, it, it, even something you said earlier, it feels to me like America has sort of gone backwards in race relations. Like it... As someone who, I mean, I was a young kid, I was born in the 70s, and as someone through the 80s and 90s, it felt like America was starting to progress. There were there was a sort of a genuine dialogue and a balance coming in, but then it's gone, swung wildly into areas where it doesn't feel like it's um, progressing forward. It's gone backwards. No, I would absolutely agree with that. I think it has gone backwards. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, things were progressing when you had um, uh, figures like, like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Okay, Uh, and and so here's here's what's happened since he was assassinated. um, There really hasn't been anyone to take his place. Right. Because what did he do? He gathered the people around himself, black, white, no matter what, because it was the 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 ideology that he espoused. It was the the peaceful way that he said, let's enter the dialogue. Um, and, and, And but you have nobody like that now. So it's created a a vacuum and a void. And so with no one to fill that void in, in the spirit uh, and, and, uh, and ideology of Martin Luther King, you have all of these pseudo uh, cultural ideologies and individuals and, and uh, institutions that are, but, and, and their whole underlying thing is not racial healing. It, they have a, an underlying agenda, which is being carried under the facade yeah. Of of rate of racial justice and equality, but it's really a, a Trojan horse. What's inside is a completely different agenda, which has nothing to do with that. But they're using it as a vehicle to move another agenda forward, which is fairly consistent. And I think let, let's talk about that because I know in in the um, pricey to your book, it, it sort of makes a distinction um, I, I, that I read there between critical race theory. Uh, and Black Lives Matter. And obviously underlying that, there is the Marxist thing that's just sitting there boiling away beneath the surface as well as part of those movements. But you make a distinction between those two. Tell me tell me about why that distinction is there uh, in, in, the, in the review of the book. Yeah, so there, there's a, so the, the book is not about those things. I mean, I know what's mm. going to happen. I told um, Ignatius Press this uh, when I was, when I submitted the manuscript, I said, look, Everybody, when this book comes out, everybody's going to want me to talk about Black Lives Matter and, and critical race theory. <laughs> the book is called 
building a civilization of love, a Catholic response to racism. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. And, and, and those things, now I originally wanted to put those in one chapter. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, when I started learning what critical race theory is, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so huge. I, I have to give each their yeah. individual chapter. And the only reason I even mentioned those things, because there are different um, uh, there are different elements within the church. There are different people within the church who are trying to bring these ideologies in and say, hey, yeah. this is helpful in this discussion. So I said, okay, well, you know, I'm not really sure what these things are about. Let me learn yeah. and let me assess objectively because yeah, well, maybe there is something here i i, I don't yeah. want to enter into polemics and then well this writer says that it's bad and that writer says it's bad yeah. well let me see for myself so what i did was i bought the books uh, yeah. of the people who develop like critical race theory so derek bell richard delgado janine stefanik kimberly crenshaw yeah. and i read what they have to say for themselves about what critical race theory is yeah. i i bought well, not the books, but I, I read a lot of the literature. And in fact, there was a a young woman who who wrote about uh, uh, Catholicism and the Black Lives Matter movement. How they're actually, uh, you know, uh, they dovetail beautifully together. You know, it's yeah. just a, Black Lives Matter is just an extension of Catholic social teaching. She wrote a book <laughs> yeah. about that. So yeah. I said, okay, okay, well, hold on, let, let me take a look at this. Look objectively, maybe there's something here. I did the same thing with liberation theology. So. Uh, the the common the common thread in all three is this is this Marxist ideology. So let me mm -hmm. explain critical race. So critical race theory um, developed from critical legal theory of the 1970s, which mm -hmm. looked at uh, critical legal theory that even though the laws on race have changed, it hasn't really changed the attitude or the situation with regard to race. So yeah. just by changing laws doesn't mean you change. Attitudes, and so there, and, that, and that's Derek Bell and Co., isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah, that's yeah. correct. And so yeah. that necessarily is not bad in itself, right? Mm. But but the way they go about bringing about the change—that's what the issue is. Now, critical legal theory comes out of critical theory from the 1920s, um, which comes out of Karl Marx, and mm. interestingly, not Engels, but Freud, with yeah, di okay. with dialectical materialism, yeah. which comes from Hegel's. Uh, 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 dialectic. So Hegelian dialectic says that there's a thesis, right? right? And then there's a and there's a, a, a counter antithesis, and the tension, conflict, and struggle between thesis and antithesis leads to a new synthesis. Yeah. So Marx took that along with Freud and tried to apply it to to the to uh, not hard sciences but soft sciences, like mm. Freud to psychology and. Uh, 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 and then um, uh, Marx to economics and 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 social and sociology and, and history itself, right? And, and his H, H epoch is that struggle being resolved. Yeah. So his dialectical materialism says, okay, mm. you have the bourgeois on one side, mm. the proletariat on on the other side, and the tension, conflict, the struggle between bourgeois and proletariat leads to socialist communism. You know, mm. so 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 that kind of thinking has carried itself forward into critical race theory today. Where mm -hmm. the idea is in order to affect change, you have to have tension, conflict, and struggle. Yeah. My argument in the book is that's not the gospel. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Awesome, and, no. and the thing is, they they critical race theory has nothing to do with faith. They didn't mm -hmm. build their, their theory on faith. They they mm -hmm. don't approach it from a faith perspective. They could care less mm -hmm. about faith at all. So I'm thinking, why are we even bringing this into the conversation when it's not meant to even be there? Yeah. We're trying to yeah. force something into a position where it doesn't belong. 
And even though, yeah. again, that's why I read the books of the people who wrote it. They're not interested in faith. Yeah. And neither is the Black Lives Matter movement. They're not interested in faith. So, so we have this, okay. And, and not, so even that's okay. Maybe there's something here we can take and, and adopt and, and incorporate it into a faith perspective. But we just can't, at least not right now. Yeah, it's interesting. The two, two things that really strike me as a big difference is I was actually telling a group this the other day is um, that Christianity um, isn't actually into revolution. We go on mission. We want, we want to see the world improve. We do it through that mission of self-giving love rather than tearing everything down. Um, and uh, yeah, also the, the sense in which um, Marx makes everything political. Yeah. Everything is political, even your relationship to God. Like like the church becomes a tool of oppression. And and um, th- there's, uh, in actual fact, um, I would argue we're not, not everything is political, nor should it be, because that just leads to tribalism and everything else, the, the, all the awful excesses we've seen over the last hundred years or so. But everything is definitely relational. We're beings made in the image of the Trinity. We are relational. And if like that's Dr. Martin Luther King, from my perspective. He sees the common humanity. It's our relationship first. Then we use that to launch that's into the exactly, politics. That's exactly, that's the point of my book. Mm. That's the whole point of my book. That, mm. that we, we can't go about trying to change structures and mm. organizations, but without first changing people. Yeah. Right, because the people are the ones who make up these organizations and structures. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. and, and so how do we try to destroy the structure? You try to destroy the structure by the, the destroying ideology, yeah. um, and imposing your ideology into some place where it doesn't belong, and trying to force people along. So, f- for example, in the critical race uh, definition, critical race theory definition of race, it has nothing to do with biological or, char- or, or, or biological or physical characteristics or distinctions within a species. So it's not about uh, black, white, Hispanic, Native American, Native uh, uh, New Zealand or anything like that. And it, yeah. it's not about Italian, New Zealand, uh, uh, Aussie, French, right? Yeah. For them, race is a social construct, mm. right? And, and where the predominant race exercises authority, dominion, and control over the lesser races. That's their definition of race, yeah. uh, of, what, of what racism is. <laughs> so again, yeah. uh, 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 domination, not looking at the human element. Mm. So, the, 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 and so what I, the argument I make in my book, and when I talk about the Catholic response to racism, the, number one, the very first thing that we have to do is exactly what you said. We have to be able to see the image and likeness of God in the person standing in front of us. And mm. I did read Martin Luther King. I mean, I, I now, we all know who Martin Luther King is, right? But I never, be honest, I never really read a lot of his stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so I read his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. I read Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Oh, I love that. I've got that on my shelf. And I was it. like, this guy yeah. gets it, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He yeah. got, and that's why he was able to bring people together of yeah. all races, because they got the message, which basically was the gospel. So yeah. I'm not trying to say in this book, I'm trying to fill that void to be new Martin Luther King. I'm not saying that. I'm just a, a, a simple Catholic evangelist. What I'm trying to do is say, if we really, uh, here's the thing, I think the church can take the lead in this issue, because let's be yeah. real, the church always comes from behind, right? We, yeah. we uh, so about, the, in the United States, the so-called redefinition of marriage, which, is, which didn't define anything, because God determines what marriage is, not the state. <laughs> That's right. And, yeah. and, but when, they, when that happened, what did we do? We said nothing, really, mm-hmm. a, maybe a few bishops said some things, but they really didn't fight it that hard. Mm-hmm. And when the law, when the Supreme Court made the decision, then they started issuing statements. It's too yeah. late. Yeah. So I, I think with this issue of race, for once, the Catholic yeah. Church can take the lead. So for once, people can say, hey, look what the Catholic Church is doing. 
Let's follow their lead instead of, oh, let's come, we're, we're coming from behind. I think part of the problem is because the sex abuse scandal, a lot of the moral credibility um, yeah. of the bishops have been undermined. And so they're afraid yeah. to, to move forward in, in, in issues like this that are considered controversial because they say, you know, well, our, you know, we have no moral standing anymore. Yeah. But the gospel does. <laughs> so yeah, instead right. of focusing on, that's why I don't talk about reparations, all these other things. It's not the gospel. Uh, yeah. let's, let's first do what St. Teresa of Calcutta did. See Jesus standing, uh, Christ standing in the person in front of you. Yeah. I, for me, it's what's, what I find really interesting and frustrating about it all is um, I see it sitting in a bigger cultural crisis in a sense, particularly in the West. Like when um, Kimberly Crenshaw writes her essay in 89 about intersectionality and yeah. th there's truth in this, what she's seeing, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, those black women at General Motors who are last to be laid off. And, and so there is a, a disadvantage there. There's something that's unequal. The solution's the problem. And, and w what she's doing is she's seeing issues within a culture that is now more and more embracing like enlightenment liberalism. And so, which liberalism tr wants to keep the fruit of Christianity, but it doesn't want to tend to the tree. And so all of a sudden um, it's powerless when Marxism comes along and says, well, we've got the solution because we've all been told to be liberals, keep Christianity, Christianity out of the public square, you know, um, and, and uh, it's all about the individual subject making up their own truth for themselves. And here comes this, uh, group of um, political advocates and activists who are claiming that they've actually got a real answer and, and that's Marxism. And we're very vulnerable, I feel, to it because liberalism, which we've all sort of embraced, leaves us very vulnerable because it doesn't give us an overriding religious concept of reality or who we are. Right. And so you start to divide, uh, uh, define and shape reality into your own image. So instead of yep. seeing being made in the image and likeness of God, we're making God into mm. our own image and likeness. Yep. Like the, the, like her idea of intersectionality. So so mm. what defines you, right? So in critical race mm. theory, so what defines you is uh, I am a white, uh, lesbian, uh, uh, democratic, uh, yeah. you know, uh, teacher or what I mean. So that's what defines you. It's a social construct. Yeah. You know, and people, what, what, why, how do you define yourself? I'm a son of the living God. Yeah, awesome. That's what defines me. People like mm -hmm. people say to me, "You're a black Catholic." I said, "No, I'm not. I'm a Catholic <laughs> yeah. who's black." Yeah. What yeah. What's the difference? You're denying your black identity. I'm like, no. When I stand before Jesus Christ, when I die, He's not going to ask me how black I am. <laughs> Did you pick yeah. up your cross and follow me? Did you awesome. multiply the talents that I gave you for my yeah. glory? Where's my tenfold, fiftyfold, hundredfold return on the investment I made in you. So does that mean I, I deny my black? No, I love my Caribbean heritage. I, I love our food. I love our music. I still speak our dialect. I love everything about that. But unless I am able to see the image and likeness of God in you, I, I can't appreciate all the other beautiful things that, because everything else becomes a caricature. Yeah. You see, but I have to see you first the way God sees you and appreciate that and all the other gifts that you bring. Now I'm able to uh, appreciate that much more better because now I'm able to see you the way God sees you. That's yeah, my I find point. It fr well, and I agree. I find it frustrating because you're right. The, 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 the church has everything that is necessary right now for the world to hear. And, and I think to me, this is just so fundamental. Um, you know, St. Paul there is no Jew or gentle, no woman or man, no slave or free, all are one in Christ. That moral equality, which has been fundamental to Christianity from the very beginning, even if we've been imperfect through different ages of history at living that out, 
it's it's the very thing the world needs right now, right? No, oh, there's no question about it. And we can't be afraid to bring that message to the culture because it's, I mean, mm. it's it's uh, it's it's difficult right now, right? Because you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you you you. For example, I, I gave a talk um, at a, a a Catholic middle school uh, mm. in a particular state uh, in the U.S. and um, I thought, okay, this is a Catholic school. They wanted me to talk about meeting Jesus in the beauty and truth of the Catholic faith. So this yeah. was middle school, or sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So um, during the talk, I just, I didn't mention, I said, well, here's some issues that we need to think about. All this. So yeah. I, I mentioned like some people saying that marriage is something else other than one man and one woman. Uh, that a child in the womb is, is not a person, it's a blob of tissue. That mm. boys can be girls and girls can be boys. That a people that's a person that's elderly and or, or someone that's terminally ill, just kill them, you mm. know, euthanize them or, or or offer them assisted suicide because they're not worth much anymore because they're no no longer useful to society. Mm. And just just in passing, I didn't go into any detail into any one of those <laughs> topics. So at the end of the talk, uh, many of the students clapped and said, "When are you coming back?" You know, but then I got some emails from some parents and some teachers that were there. You know, uh, and, and it was just, um, it was just very hateful. Uh, yeah. Just, just you know, at homing them attacks. They didn't even attack my argument. They attacked me personally. Yeah. They called me a buffoon. They said, "I will never have you." Uh, what was it? it? Was child abuse? I'll never have you, 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 this wow. again. Yes, you know, so, just I mean, just vicious attacks. Yeah. So fast forward, um, that was last year. So earlier this year, I gave that same talk at a different. Catholic school mm. and uh, I was I went on the road I came back home and there was an envelope that was pretty thick and I mm. thought okay someone sent me a manuscript they want me to read or whatever you know <laughs> and so I opened it and it was a, the yeah. cover letter was from the teacher at that school they said I just want to let you know how much we appreciate you coming here and speaking the truth the kids could not stop talking about your presentation they were sharing with their parents and their grandparents and you know i just want to send you some letters that the kids wrote i mean it was a oh. stack of oh, letters and i was reading one and i was tearing up it was yeah. saying you have no idea i thought god had abandoned me and after listening to you i realized god is with me and you know i'm thinking about mm. my faith differently now it just let i mean not, not just little notes i mean long handwritten letters it yeah. was so beautiful awesome. You know, because sometimes when you speak the truth in love, um, you know, not everybody's ready to hear that message. And yeah. and, and so you're afraid to speak because you're, you're going to get beat up. But guess yeah. what? Jesus said, if you are to be my disciple and deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. What happened when he picked up his cross? They spat on him. They punched yeah. him. They mocked him. They beat him all the way to the cross, uh, all the way to Calvary. The same thing's going to happen to us. Right, yeah. we pick yeah, up our yeah. cross and follow Jesus. Yeah. Same thing's going to happen to us. So we have yeah. to expect it and not be afraid. Yes, mm. it, we may not be popular. Yes, we we may lose followers on social media. So what? Because yeah. for me, I don't care how many followers I have on any. So I I could care less uh, because I have to stand before Jesus Christ at the end of my life and give an account for the gift of the diaconate that He's given me. That's awesome, and I, to me, I feel because I, I do similar work that uh, in my ministry that I. That's what I hear. What doing. These guys would yeah. tell me you're the best Catholic <laughs> oh, no, speaker in, in, no, in New Zealand. No, no, God is good. All glory goes to Him. Um, I, I get, I get by. Um, but uh, but one thing that frustrates me is um, we talk about evangelism, 
Um, but it feels like at the moment we're just managing a decline. And we think, well, if we just stay quiet, they'll somehow let us no. carry on. No, 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 no they're yeah. not. They want the whole pie. And unless you're actually trying to, um, I guess, present and offer them something different and defend the pie, then they'll just come and take all of it. And then we'll be left with nothing. And there won't be any opportunity to evangelize, you know? So you've got to speak up, right? Yeah. So what is evangelization? You know, it comes mm. from the Greek word evangelion, which means good news, right? And, and mm. evangelium in Latin. Um and it, it meant that in both cultures, the Greek and the Roman culture, uh, except mm-hmm. when in, in uh, the time of Jesus, when Caesar proclaimed news, right? Mm-hmm. It just wasn't good news. It was life-changing news. Why? Because news from the king could change your life. Well, yeah. we serve the king of kings and the Lord of yeah. lords, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> news from Jesus is not just good news. It's life-changing news. Evangelization is about introducing people to the life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's So how we do that shows whether we're effective evangelizers or not. So beating people over the head, yelling, screaming, trying to win arguments, trying yeah. to demean people, to, that that doesn't work. Um, no. Because you have may have won an argument, the person's further away than when you yeah. first started. You know, you, you've, won, you've accomplished nothing. The person's not any closer to Christ. The question we should be asking ourselves when we're doing evangelization is, how do I get this person standing in front of me to want to listen to more of what I have to say? Right. Yeah. That's the first piece. The second piece is with young people. I hear all the time, no matter what country I'm in, because I speak to kids all over the world, literally. They tell me we want to hear the truth and we're not hearing it yeah. all the yeah. Yeah, time. Same for me. I've had people say to me, thank you. You're the first person who's given me a straight answer on a yes. controversial question. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They want truth. Why? Because mm. Jesus says, I am the way, mm. the truth, and the knife. Not an ideology, not a social construct. Uh, mm. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So we, when we introduce people to a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, then that's their hearts to be open to accepting the message and, and then really uh, living their life in in, uh, in a way that's consummate with with um, the 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 lessons of Jesus Christ teaches us how to live and how to be, um, uh, how to treat each other with love, dignity, and respect. I don't know how you feel about this, but I often have people say to me now, oh, you gosh, you're so brave what you do. And, and you know, Christianity is so unpopular and you speak about it in public. And I, I think, I don't think I'm brave at all because I think this is the best thing we could offer people. And it's just, to me, it's so obviously true and good and beautiful. It, it's it, like, to me, bravery is required when you're not sure of what you're offering people, not when you're so confident that this thing is so good and true. And why wouldn't we be offering it to people? Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, Jesus told the truth, they killed him. <laughs> so, yeah. so people yeah, yeah. people don't want the cross. They they they, no. they 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 want faith without the 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 the, the, the mm. crucifixion. But see, yeah. you got to remember, there is no resurrection without crucifixion. And what does yeah. Psalm ninety say? The Psalm written by Moses. Our span is seventy years or eighty for those mm. who are strong. And most of these are toil and pain. They pass swiftly, yeah. and we are gone. Right? Yeah. We only got one shot at this thing. And so, yes, some of the things that I... I'm not, and so the thing is, I think for both of us, we're not trying to be controversial. No. There are some no. speakers who are trying, who, who deliberately say things yeah. knowing that they're going to get a reaction. And, they're, and, they're, yeah. and, they, and they do that deliberately because that'll get them likes, that'll get them... Yeah. I don't care about it. I don't care how many people follow me on, on my YouTube channel or on any social... I could care less. But what, yeah. what I'm preaching is, is Ephesians 4.15. Paul says, preach the truth in love. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's it's leading with love. 
It's leading yeah. with love. And we, and, and we love people enough, uh, enough not to lie to them like the culture's doing. Yeah. You know, we love them yeah. not to be yeah. able to tell the truth. I, I, like I often say, I want a dialogue that actually draws people closer to goodness and truth. And I'm not interested in winning an argument, like you were saying before. It just um, When I was younger, that was a trap I often had to fight against. And, um, yeah, I, I think it, it is so fundamentally important, I think, to be orientated around the fact that everything we do is, as Christians is supposed to be a call to self-giving love. Even morality itself, right? It's a call to love of God, love of truth, love of goodness. It's, you know, I don't do things because I'm afraid to go to hell. Uh, or because they feel good. I do them because I love doing what is good and what is true, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, we, we see we talk about love in, in the scriptures, right? They talk about mm. basically four types of love. Uh, there's storge, which is uh, uh, love between family members. There's uh, philia, which is a friendship uh, type of love. There's eros, which is a physical exotic love. And there's agape, or Hebrew yeah. would be hesed. Uh, the yeah. idea of a self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-donating love. That's yeah. the love that Christ mm. uh, exhibited on the cross, you know, and that's the love that we're all called to, to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out in love for the other. You know, wh one thing about what makes marriage uh, and uh, so awesome, even religious vocations and stuff, which is, again, you know, uh, anticipating the marriage feast of heaven, Revelation 19, verse 9, uh, what makes it so beautiful is that you are making a gift to yourself to the other person. It's not what you can get out of it. It's a gift that you make to that other person. It's a dying yeah. to self, right? So that the, so the other person can flourish. So the other yeah. person can utilize the gifts to their, to their maximum potential to honor God, to be the person who God created them to be. You know, yeah. that, that's where the real beauty comes from for our faith. And, and, and that's the message that's missing in our culture today. Everything is yeah. turned in on the self, we worship yeah. Trinity of me, myself, and I. <laughs> yeah, great. You know, and you can't love the way that God loves when when love is turned in on itself. Mm. The irony too is that it's um it's not just those who receive our self giving love who flourish. We also flourish by doing yes. it. That's the paradox, you know. Yep. And 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 it's strange. Our culture desperately wants. It's really Freud again, right? They want that happiness, that self gratification. The very thing they're looking for is found by giving yourself away. Yeah, it's when you give yourself away in love. Is when you truly mm. find yourself in God. Yeah, yeah, that's the key to understanding that. And and people in life are trying to be happy, right? They, they, but you can't find happiness unless you first find joy, right? Yeah. And, and and that goes back to Romans chapter eight, where and, and I think that um, Paul nails it there in the letter to Romans. He said, "Those who, uh, those who I'm trying to paraphrase here, uh, set their minds on the." Uh, on on the flesh, focus on the things of the flesh, right? And the word he yeah. uses there in Sarks, which has two meanings, it it could mean what how uh, Jesus used it in John chapter six, which means uh, flesh on the bone, or it could be yeah. used like for earthly things, like um, material things. So yeah. what, the way Paul is using it there, like those who set their mind on the flesh, focus on the things of the flesh. So worldly things. So if you if you're focusing your mind and your, your life on the world then that's what you're going to be focusing everything else in your life. He goes, but those who uh, uh, think about the things of God, right, are going to focus on God. But he, yeah. he, here's the key. He said to set the mind on the flesh is death, yeah. right? And it's thanatos, which is the, which is the, the, the Greek word for death, or, or mavet in Hebrew means to cut yourself off from God's life. Right. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so death. So for Hebrew, the death doesn't just doesn't mean 
Physical death means to cut yourself off from God's life, which is worse yeah. than death, right? Yeah. Which is worse than death. And so, uh, but he said to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Yeah. That's where the joy comes from. And when you have that kind of joy, then you can live a life of happiness. But you got to be careful because joy doesn't always mean you're going to be happy. Joy yeah. means following and doing God's will. So at the Annunciation, when the angels said, um, you know, the Blessed Mother, here's what God wants to do. She said, yes. And then at the presentation with Simeon, a sword will pierce your own soul so the thoughts of yeah, many hearts right. may be laid there. That you said yes to this. And, and, and so that's the joy, but that joy doesn't always mean that you're going to be happy. I'm sure at the foot of the cross, the Blessed Mother was not happy. No. But, but she was <laughs> joyful in the sense that uh, God's will, she saw God's will being lived out on that cross, um, but she was not happy because she saw her child dying um, in front of her face, and there's nothing she could do about it. Yeah, joy is so much more profound, right? Yes. Um, happiness will come and go. And that's where we get confused around love too. Yes. Authentic love is the act of self-giving. It's not uh, sentimentality. It's not lust. It's not how I feel. It's not how you make me feel. It's how can I seek your good? How can I work for you? Right, and, wh and what happens, and, and, and you're right, because Pope Benedict talks about this in Deus Caritas S. Yeah, when you beautiful. separate eros from agape, you have a love mm. that's turned, and what's the result of that? Prostitution, human trafficking, Hmm. Uh, uh, contraception, ab ab even and in, in, in ab abortion, right? Because yeah. oh, it didn't work, so we just have to kill the child, you know. Because I'm just using you for an object as a for pleasure for myself. Oh, oh there's an unintended consequence of this action, and we have to get rid of the the problem that was yeah. caused by this. And see, and that's what the, happens in our culture. That's why uh, 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 human trafficking is just a, a multi-billion-dollar industry. Because you yeah. see people's objects. And that's why it's even better than the drug trade. That's why it's yeah. grown because a lot of the drug traffickers say, hey, wait a minute. If I sell this drug, um, it's it, it's gone. I mean, the person uses it and it's gone. They have to come back for more. But I could use this one girl four, five, six, seven times yeah. a day. I'm getting more out of her. Than, you see what I'm saying? So yeah. so it's like it's like a it's like a drug trade, really, what it is. Uh and and, and we have a love that's so focused on the self. Um, and not looking at what's best for the other, this is how we end up with a lot of issues we're seeing in our culture today. Speaking of engaging with the culture and the church, engaging with the culture, um, I, I really loved in um, um, Benedict's um, Jesus of Nazareth, he talks about that moment where Barabbas is brought out before Christ, and he highlights how Barabbas is actually a political revolutionary leader. Barabbas means son of the father. Mm -hmm. um, so really the crowd is actually being asked to choose between a Christ and a type of antichrist who's a political messiah. It feels that's the very struggle of our age right now. And, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about in this book really is political utopian promises. We'll save you through politics. We'll fix racial issues through politics. How does the church speak into that? Because it feels to me in the church that we are too much embedded in a political gospel we're trying to you know we're, we're playing that game too much and we're dumbing down the gospel and trying to make it political when christ is not a political Messiah. exactly and that's why in the, mm. in, in the the bulk of my book i talk about a catholic response to racism what kinds of yeah. things can we do so for example i talk about in my parish uh which is a a, a very small 109 families inner city parish very awesome. poor um mm. and we literally have drug dealing and prostitution right along the side of the church like yeah. Literally, like almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, yeah. and, and so uh, even though it's, it, we have half the parish is Vietnamese, the other half are Africans and Filipinos and a bunch of folks, very diverse. But when I first got to the parish, everybody was in silos. 
the the Vietnamese mm. were doing their own thing, the Filipinos doing their own thing, the Africans doing their own thing. I'm like, wait a minute, why aren't we mixing more? <laughs> and so one yeah. of the things we did was potlucks. You know, also, so so everybody brought their cultural food, and we we laid it out on a huge table from one end of the parish hall to the other. People were eating foods they never ate before ever, trying it for the first mm -hmm. time. And then we we handpicked some people to get up and share their experience. Well, let me tell you what it's like coming from uh, Tanzania and trying to live my Catholic faith in in, in this age today. And and wow. the Vietnamese person would say, you know what? Let me tell you how I'm trying to keep my kid Catholic because. My kid doesn't want to speak Vietnamese. They don't want to hold on to their culture. They want to be assimilated into, into the culture. Here's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And the other people are going, wait a minute, I got the same problem with my kids. <laughs> you know. And so now yeah. they see, wait a minute, these aren't just people from this other culture. We have some commonalities here. And, yeah. and then, we, then we started finding excuses to, for potlucks. Oh, someone's graduating, <laughs> potluck, confirmation, <laughs> potluck. You know? awesome. and, and the other thing we did was we, the images of the church, because back in the day, the church was Irish and German. So mm. it's Immaculate Heart of Mary. So we're a huge statue of Immaculate Heart of Mary. And then on either side of Blessed Mother is St. Patrick and St. Bonaventure, right? The German <laughs> yeah, Irish. Yeah. But the church don't look like that anymore. So then we brought no. in statues of Our Lady of Lavang, an approved yeah. apparition of, of the Blessed Mother of Vietnam. Of Vietnam. We have uh, St. Martin de Porres. You mm. know, uh, we have uh, St. Kateri de Tech with her. We have all these oh, images beautiful. of the church yeah. that now represent the people that worship there. You know, uh, entering into yeah. dialogue, you know, I'm like, I'd love somebody to uh, to come down and uh, come and say to me, you know what, Deacon, whenever I see a black person, when I'm around people, of, I just get nervous and I don't know yeah. why, you yeah. know, and I don't want to feel that way. I know it's wrong. I don't want, can we talk about that? Yes, yeah. that's awesome. honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those are difficult discussions, but they're honest. Yeah. And that's how we start to, to break down the walls of prejudice by 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 doing these very simple things, but people say, "Oh, that's just too simplistic." So, but see, it's not politics; it's the gospel. No, it's the gospel. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to me too. I one thing I find really challenging now is because the the term social justice, it's the the social doctrines were given to the world by the church. They've now been co opted and corrupted by um, political Marxist views and and sort of woke ideology to such a degree that that even saying social justice is now a dirty word even people outside of the church it's it's a dirty word and so it's frustrating how do we present the beauty of of like Christian social teaching um, is it a matter of us being such a beacon in our own lives that people want to hear you know by seeing first or how do we cut through that um I, I, I sometimes I I always have to pray see now, but when I use that phrase, I always make sure the audience knows I'm making a distinction. This, this, this is not the typical social justice um, political movement you're used to hearing about. Yeah, see, and, and you're right. Um, words have become weaponized in our mm. culture today. So when you say social justice, you're automatically you're a left-leaning liberal Catholic as well. Yeah, and and yeah. that's not what it is at all. I mean, if mm. you look at the fundamental tenets of, of Catholic social justice, the first one is creating a culture of life. Yeah, you know, so you have to. Start, you want social justice? You know, all the other stuff doesn't matter if you're dead. Yeah, you know, if it, it doesn't matter if you have no opportunity to even live, then so that's so you have to start there as the fundamental tenet of Catholic social justice and work and work out from there. And, and the problem is, uh, many of the uh, of the uh, the topics under Catholic social justice have become politicized, and really yeah. they're not political issues. They're issues of life and death that have become politicized. Right, so you look at uh, immigration and work with migrants and um, 
fair wages for workers and the environment. These are all yeah. parts of Catholic social justice, but you have to read it within the context of, of a proper understanding of all that flows from a culture of life. But what's yeah. happening, they've taken each individual uh, uh, aspect out of it and held yeah. it up as its, as its own in individual um, individual uh, concern. But that's too simplistic. You have to see it within the context of the entire teaching and not yeah. pull it out and, and use it as a weapon for polarization. So for, like, for the big one right now is the environment. You know, yeah. uh, every we have to protect Mother Earth because Mother Earth is dying. And they again, using pulling out the Catholic understanding of, of uh, uh, creation and, and, yeah. and respect for the environment and, and using that as, its, uh, as uh, an absolute instead of seeing it within the context of all the rest of Catholic social teaching. So what we have to do is return uh, to see everything within that proper context of, of a hermeneutic and not just yeah. as an individual uh, way of thinking. Yeah, and it feels to me too that the, the politicization just doesn't help. The political false dichotomy, people, and rightly so, they're deathly afraid of collectivism and Marxism and communism, and they think, well, the only other option then must be um, that we embrace capitalism and radical individualism. And and to me, I'm desperately trying to convince audiences, no, 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 there is another way here. And and, and it's around human dignity yes. and it's around community. And and really what we're saying here is it, that is the fullness of the gospel to me, it seems, that's missing. Yeah, and, and what did Jesus do? He formed a community. Mm. Twelve apostles, what did they do? They formed communities, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, so we right. see this, this is the way of the gospel. Uh, and mm -hmm. so what I propose in, in the book, just following the gospel tenets, following gospel mm -hmm. teaching. And I've already had people say to me, well, it's too simplistic when I've given talks <laughs> on, on that part of the book. It's too simplistic. It's too that, well, God is simple. Yes, God exists as a trinity, yeah. but even the catechism says God is really simple. You know, and so we, we've, we're the ones that have taken these and politicized them and polemicized them um, where they become unpalatable to many people in the culture. Um, is that do you do you think that that's people when they say it's too simplistic? Is that really them sort of saying, "I'm looking for a political answer because everything's yes. supposed to be political"? Yes, exactly. Mm. So what you're proposing, you know, starting at the parish level and, and the potlucks is like, come on, you know, that, that's that's <laughs> too simplistic. But again, yeah. what are we trying to change? Hearts, lives, mm. right? If mm. if we start there and start seeing people the way God sees them, then we we can go to change structures. What is what are these structures that 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 all uh, critical race theory, liberation theology, black lives want to tear down? It's institutions that are created by people. <laughs> so yeah. my thing, let's change the people. It's like the minds and the hearts, and then the institutions yeah. will follow. It feels to me too like in that vision of reality, which is so good and true, you have to then start local. And I, I sense we're so obsessed with changing the global that we're not changing anything because you can't do that. But you can actually affect the local and the, the, your neighbor right now, for example, then the community around you, right? Exactly. That's the, that's the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, where, mm. you, where you try to find solutions at the lowest level. Right, so you always mm -hmm. don't look to the government for a solution. Let's figure this out on our own. That's why you have Saint Vincent de Paul and Catholic Charities and other organizations working at the local level, at the community level, to affect change. You know, yeah. and of course, you're always going to have people that are try to to fix things through political, through politics, and changing structures and passing laws and stuff like that. But for us as Christians, the first approach should always be the the person. Should always yeah. be people. Um, and yet that may sound simplistic, but that's what Jesus did. 
And you know, yeah. I, I, I like the song in the stacks. He was saying, "I decide to follow Jesus." Right. So yeah, I've got one other question I want to ask you that's um, uh, related to the topic, but not directly. But before I do that, just I guess one practical thing for people: what do you think people could do? Like someone who's listening to this and thinking, "Yeah, this is great. I, I'm really buying into this." How, what what can I do now though to make a change? Is, is there something I can yeah. small that I can start? You have doing? to what do I you do? have to recognize these things within yourself that we're all mm. sinful, that we're all broken, and that quite frankly we all have prejudices. Maybe and some of them are racial prejudices that mm. we may have. Recognize that, and, and and the parable I use in the book is the par- uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? So yeah. you have the the Jewish guy laying on the ground. And you have the priest and the rabbi, uh, the priest and the, and the Levite that walk by, who they're, they're Jewish brothers, nothing, mm-hmm. but the Samaritan, who they're supposed to hate, who mm-hmm. they want to have. That now he's supposed to share. That's what the woman at the well was a Samaritan. Now he's supposed to share a cup together. Jesus says, "Give me some water." He goes, "I'm not even supposed to." You know, first of all, you're not supposed mm-hmm. to sit here with a woman, and second of all, I'm a Samaritan. Yeah. We're not even supposed to use things in common. You're That's asking right. me for a drink, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, but Samaritan saw the guy laying on the ground. And he, like you said, that self-giving, self-sacrificing love. He picked him up. He put him on his animal. He he, he uh, started to heal his, uh, uh, patch up his wounds with uh, oil and, and and wine. And he he paid for his care at the end. Mm-hmm. And you know, you hear that story today, and if. And you would say, you know, oh, of course, I would have done the same thing, of course. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, then I ask, okay, what if that person on the side of the road was the person who raped you when you were a child? Wow. What if yeah. that person on the side of the road was the police officer who beat you? Mm-hmm. What if that person on the side of the road was the person who drove drunk and killed your spouse? Yeah. Ooh, not so easy now, huh? Because our first mm-hmm. reaction is, uh, uh, tension, conflict, and struggle, right? I want to <laughs> see that person suffer. I want them to have the same fit. No, but that's not what Jesus says, right? Jesus says mm-hmm. we have to have mercy. We have to have love. We have to have compassion. Jesus, one of the, the basic tenets of Jesus says love your enemies What yeah. and pray for them. What? How are we supposed to love somebody we, and, and pray? What? But that's the gospel, see? Yeah. So, so the thing is we have to remember that we have to lead with love. That love is the answer to the to to the, the this whole problem of race and the key to human flourishing. So we have to be the Samaritan. So don't overcomplicate it. Just not love the nearest person to you and keep doing it. Yeah, but you, but you have to recognize the prejudices within yourself, recognize yeah. that they're there, and 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 do some of the things we talk about, including entering into a dialogue to to be mm. able to say, okay, I recognize that I have these and I don't want them. What can I do? And like, for, for example, my my college roommate. Oh, this is so funny. This is back in the days where there was no social media, no internet, no cell phones. No, I mean, come on. So if my mom wanted, to, wanted to, to, to find me, she would stick her head out the window and yell. And right, and and so uh, so when we went to, and I lived in a trip. I lived with two other guys in, in freshman year. So all you got was a letter. That said, here's the name of your roommate, and here's where they're from, what city and state. Yeah. So you couldn't look them up. There's no Google. There's, you know, <laughs> so so I get to the room first, mm. and I'm uh, sitting on the bed, and, and I don't I don't want to unpack my stuff because the other two guys aren't there yet, and we have to figure out how we're gonna do all this. So I was just yeah. sitting there, and I got bored, so I pulled out my guitar, and I started yeah. playing my guitar. And that year uh, was when Van Halen's 1984 
album came out. Great, a- great album. It is. So I started playing <laughs> Panama. So That's as awesome. I'm playing Panama, um, Ed, one of my roommates, Ed, walks in. He said, which mm. one are you? Because remember, there's two other people on the list. He, and we never see each yeah. other. I said, I'm Harold. Yeah. He goes, you're black. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, this isn't good. And, oh, and, uh, and, they, and he goes, what are you playing? I said, Van Halen. He said, black people listen to Van Halen? I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is not good. This is so. So what happened? Ed grew up in mm-hmm. in a in a city, uh, in in a high school that didn't have a lot of black people in it. He's never mm-hmm. really interacted with anyone black in his life. And now he has to live with me, and all he knows about black people is what he all the stereotypes and prejudices that he learned over the years, right? Yeah. And so, what did he learn in that year living with me? Uh, he he learned that hey, wait a minute. Uh, this is not what I thought it was. This guy likes yeah. Judas Priest. This guy likes Iron <laughs> Maiden. You know, he's listening to Quiet Riot. What the heck? I mean, I didn't understand it. And then, you know, uh, when we go to the mall. Can I just say, as a fan of Iron Maiden, you're a man of <laughs> yeah. I, I love the Iron. Yeah, so see? <laughs> and, and so he did not expect me, as someone black, yeah. to listen to that type mm. of music. Because in his mind, all we listen to is hip-hop yeah. and rap and that other kind of stuff. Yeah. Again, not saying anything against him. This is just his experience, his ignorance, right? So, yeah. so that year, we got to learn a- about each other. We got to mm. know each other as persons. We started to break down those stereotypes. So we ended up rooming together again the next year, me and Ed. Yeah. We're rooming together next year. And so after graduation, awesome. he was in my wedding. I was in his wedding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My daughter went to school in New York for uni. And so when I dropped her off at, at, at the dorm, Ed was there. And, and, and wow. I said, honey... This is your first year in college. This was my roommate, my first year in college, and he lives here now. And and she she tell me some stories about that. I'm like, oh no, you won't, because I wasn't always Deacon Harold. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> and so as we're walking away, Ed said to me, "Don't worry, I got this." Yeah. Awesome. See, because he's like, "Don't worry, you're three thousand well kilometers. You're like, you know, what would that be in kilometers? You're like six thousand kilometers away or whatever." He said, "Um, yeah. but." I've got this. So yeah. so we, here we go from the first time we met, you're black, <laughs> to yeah, now, yeah, don't yeah. worry about your daughter. You know, uh, yeah. I, I've got this. I'm taking care of her while you're gone. You see what I'm saying? How do you get yeah. there? How do you get there? Yeah. Right? Not by tearing down structures, not by trying to yeah. redefine things, not by making the culture into your image. We did it yeah. by dialogue and understand. This is the the, the pattern that I see because why the, the same thing there's a famous story in the United States of uh, the head of the Ku Klux Klan the Grand Knight or Dragon whatever they call that guy and yeah. he uh, someone had asked him for an interview so he went to do the interview in a in a um, in a, uh, uh, a motel because he didn't want to be in the open right he saw yeah. the reporter was black yeah. he said wait a minute are you kidding me right now do you know who I am and you <laughs> asked me to come here to talk to you. what you know, yeah. and, and so he thought, okay, I'm gonna get shot right there. But but they ended up having a conversation, and over the years they got to know each other. The guy ended up yeah. leaving the Ku Klux Klan. In fact, became a godparent for one of this other guy's kids. Wow. You see what I'm saying? So wow. so, so yeah, people may criticize you too simplistic, but you know what? Yeah. The gospel is simplistic, and and yeah. and, and it's it, it's it, it's changed lives. And so uh, that's what that's all I'm trying to do is is use the message of the gospel. Uh, in order to really make a significant change in, in this issue of race. Beautiful. Now, before I ask the one question, 
remind people again of the title of the book and how do they get their hands on a copy? Yeah, so it's uh, as at the time of this interview, it's not out yet. It's called yeah. Building a Civilization of Love, a Catholic mm-hmm. Response to Racism. It's, come from, it's from Ignatius Press, and it'll be out in the fall of 2023. So you can go uh, to Amazon. You can go to the Ignatius Press website. I'm going to have it on the front page of my website, DeaconHerald.com. If you go there now, you scroll down, you can see all five of my books that I have right now that are published. So this, so this there's De- DeaconHerald.com. Yep, DeaconHerald.com. Just scroll down. Because you, you wrote... Yep. You wrote a book about Father Augustus Tolton, right? Yeah. C- can you, j- just to finish, uh, before I ask, I still haven't okay, asked you yeah, that one question, okay. but but tell us, can you give us a little quick um, uh, 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 synopsis of his life? Because he's the, the a slave who becomes yes. the first African-American yeah. priest. So right? my book is not about Father Tolton. My book is Lessons mm. We Can Learn from the Life of Father uh, yeah, Tolton. Okay, because there's awesome. already a book called, uh, by Sister Carolyn Hemesath, called From Slave to Priest. That yeah. is the definitive mm. biography on Father Tolton. So, um, but Father Tolton was born a slave in 1854. Um, uh, his family, his, after his father was killed in the Civil War, his family escaped the Underground Railroad. Uh, the, a lot of parishes rejected him because they were black. They, they went to the Irish parish, and Father McGurr saw something in a young Tolton. Uh, when he became old enough, they applied to seminary. Every seminary rejected him in the United States because he was black. The Vatican wow. ended up taking him, training him to be a priest. Yeah. He was sent back to the United States, back to the same city that rejected wow. him. Quincy, Illinois, he was a priest there. Um, couldn't uh, the, the white priest wouldn't um, support him. And so, in fact, they told the white parishioners that went to his parish, because his parish was packed every Sunday. Um, yeah. And he, he, the, the, the priest said that it doesn't count. For your Sunday obligation, if you go to his church, because his church is just no. for the blacks. Oh yeah, oh that's so yeah. Awful. So without their yeah. financial support, the church closed, and he ended up going to Chicago, and he basically yeah. died in eighteen ninety. He died in eighteen ninety seven. So forty three years mm-hmm. old, he died from mm-hmm. heat stroke, uh, a, a uremia, which is a complication from heat stroke, just working mm-hmm. too hard, you know, and and um, yeah. and so now he's on the road to canonization. In fact, wow. So there's someone you should definitely be reading yeah. about. Um, here's the question. Um, you mentioned earlier you grew up in a, a black neighborhood, predominantly Protestant, and you were heading out of the neighborhood every Sunday morning. But did you uh, did you pick up any of the the uh, the skills of the trade from the black preachers that you must have grown up around in your neighborhood? Well, that's the thing. People will say to me, "Well, you you must be a convert because you preach like a Protestant." <laughs> and I said, "Actually, I'm I've never been Protestant. I'm the first uh baptized catholic in the history of my family i was baptized two weeks after i was born so i've always been catholic i said i preach like a person who's in love with jesus yeah you know awesome Uh, but i think my the the way i preach is comes from maybe a black charism so to speak yeah Yeah. you know um like one of my favorite preachers is dr tony evans you know love that guy man (laughs) you know and i actually did some work for tbn uh, yeah, the Timothy really? Broadcast Network about 12 yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. I just, a TD Jakes, wasn't it? Was yes, right? yes, I know yeah, him. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and, yeah. and, and But there were some pastors there who didn't like the fact that I was there because I was Catholic. Wow. They invited me to be there because they said, <laughs> hey, look, we're, we've got this culture war going on. Mm. We need to come together. You know, instead mm. of instead of let, let let's find points of convergence where we can come together and mm. let's speak with one voice on some of these issues. So they asked me to come in. And um, and some of the pastors I became friends with. Some of them didn't like me because I was Catholic and whatever. But it was um, 
it was as a wonderful time. And people see my EWTN. I've been at EWTN every year since 2005. Um, yeah. But that experience uh, with the process has been powerful. And, and you know, I think especially now with everything going on in the culture, we need mm. to learn how to speak more with one voice. Yes, yeah. there are going to be issues that are, are going to keep us separate, solo scriptura and all that kind of stuff, fine. But there are issues yeah. like, for example, the life issues, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a wonderful way to make bridges and connections with our Protestant brothers and sisters instead of always uh, focusing on the the theological or ideological differences, let's, okay, fine. And we're not going to negate those, but also let's put as much energy and focus on the things that we can speak with one voice to this culture, you know, because yeah. when we speak with fractured voices, they won't take us seriously. They won't take the gospel no. seriously. Yeah, I said that to a group just this morning, actually, I was presenting to, and I said, we need the mere Christianity of C.S. Lewis. If we can all agree on the Apostles' Creed, then we've got more in common than actually what divides us, I think. Exactly you right. Know, if we can, exactly that, that, right. that matters, you know. Yeah, beautiful. And um, and so that's what I'm trying to work toward now. And yes, again, I'm not trying to be controversial, but it's just when you say, you know, Men are males and women are female. If that's yeah. controversial, then yeah, we're in what, trouble. What does that have to say? <laughs> like yeah. even in the universities now, you know, in a lot of universities mm. in the United States, they have what they call safe spaces. Oh uh, yeah. So yeah. if you say here. someone that's uh, someone says something that's offended, there's a safe space on campus. You can go and they have balloons and puppies. <laughs> And ice cream, and I think Barry Manilow oh, man. or something's playing in the background. And <laughs> You're not, no Iron Maiden. No, no Iron Maiden there. <laughs> and it's a place you can go and feel better about yourself. I'm like, wait a minute. Whatever happened to honest dialogue? Whatever happened to sitting down discussing these safe spaces? You know, <laughs> but it's just it's just gotten so far afield now. And and I think the more we can speak with one voice, the more we can be united on these yeah. issues, um, I, I think the culture will begin to take notice. Amen. Uh, on that note, I look, I've just got to say thank you, Deacon, for taking the time to be with us. And um, I've really enjoyed it, brother. It's, it's, um, I, I feel like I'm speaking to someone, a man after my own heart. And it's always good to speak to someone who's in ministry and on the front lines and, and has an appreciation for some of the unique challenges, especially being a Catholic too. It feels like sometimes you get arrows from the front and the back. And so it's, it's, uh, yeah, I just, I, I love what you're doing. And uh, it's great to have you in New Zealand. And thank you for, for being here to have the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's, uh, again, my first time to New Zealand, and I'm honored to be part of the, the podcast. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.